we need to work together on this, especially on the critical mineral that is required for the energy transition. The country who owns the resources and the reserve, the country who has the technology, I think it should work together yeah, to create uh, enough supply for these critical minerals, you know. So for Indonesia, we don't want high price nickel. We want the nickel price is just right for everybody, you know, for the producing countries, for the consumer, so that we can do this energy transition properly. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Septian Hario Seto, Deputy Minister of the Coordinating Ministry for Maritime and Investment Affairs of Indonesia. We'll be discussing how Indonesia is approaching its role in the energy transition as a major producer of both a commodity we need to use less of, coal, and a commodity we need a whole lot more of, nickel. Hello, Seto. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, David. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you for joining us. You know, I've been looking forward to talking with you about many of the things that are happening in Indonesia right now. And as I was thinking about it, it struck me that in some sense, Indonesia is at the crossroads of the energy transition to a low carbon economy. Now, on the one hand, Indonesia is a producer of coal, which we'll need to use less of in the future. And it's also a producer of nickel, which we'll need to use a lot more of. And something Daniel Jurgen said a few weeks ago on this podcast came to my mind, which is that we're not seeing one energy transition, but many energy transitions, plural, happening around the world. And so I wanted to start off by asking you, how do you in Indonesia see the energy transition or transitions? And what do you see as Indonesia's role in them? Well, yeah, thank you, David. I think this is very interesting questions. And to be honest, we have been thinking and exercising a lot yeah, about this issue. I believe there are two key principles, David, that I think we should emphasize yeah, in doing this energy transition. First, I think there is no cutting corner on this one. yeah. And second is there is no silver bullet, which means that there is no one single recipe that, you know, for all country can uh, apply it uh, on the how we should transition our uh, energy. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Yeah, If you take a look at the data based on the G20 yeah, and you calculate emission per capita, yeah, emission per capita, you will be very surprised to know that Indonesia actually at the bottom three. Yeah. Our emission per capita is only 2.3 ton compared, you know, US, Canada, the numbers is above 15 ton per capita. Yeah. So it's uh, something that I think uh, we need to mention because I think this is the fact that we cannot deny. So I think for Indonesia, we are putting a very careful equilibrium. Yeah, We are going to do this energy transition, but at the same time, we cannot sacrifice our economic growth or we cannot put 
the burden of this energy transition too high yeah, to our citizen. So I think this is something that is very important. In Indonesia, you mentioned about coal. We are the largest exporter of coal in the world. Uh, we also use a lot of coal uh, domestically. But I think since last year, yeah, the government has issued new regulation that forbid our state-owned company for the electricity, PLN, to build new coal-fired power plant for public purposes. So no coal-fired power plant for public purposes. But the government still allow if this is for captive, yeah, which means that uh, Indonesia is very wide. We have 17,500 islands. So on the some of these islands, you know, remote area, we do not have many options besides using coal for our industry over there. So we are still allowing for them to build the coal-fired power plant for industry-specific purposes, for the industry that we believe it will enhance the economic condition on that area. Yeah. But there are three requirements that you need to fulfill. So after 10 years of the operation of this coal-fired power plant, you have to reduce your emission by 35%. That's number one. Number two, you need to retire this coal-fired power plant by 2050. Our net zero emission target is 2060 David. And number three, you have to prove that your industry that you will build over there will absorb a lot of employment, will have a significant economic impact to the region. So this is the three criteria that have to be fulfilled. So I guess with this one, we are trying to manage our energy transition, but at the same time, we don't want to sacrifice as well our, our economic growth. So that's first. The second one, actually, we are working with JetP right now. Yeah, a lot of discussion going on on how actually we can reduce our coal-fired power plant capacity. We are proposing an early retirement on our old coal-fired power plant, but the discussion is still still not really fruitful. The G7, who actually sponsored this G20, doesn't really like you know about the idea of this early retirement of the coal-fired power plant. But one thing that, you know, we propose to them also, if you do don't want to this early retirement, help us to build the smart grid. This smart grid is very important, David, because, you know, if you want to absorb the intermittency of this renewable energy from solar, from wind, you need to have advanced grid. Our grid is quite old, so it will not able to absorb a lot of intermittency, which means that, you know, if we are not, building this new grid, it is going to be quite difficult for us, you know, to add more on the solar, on wind power. But very lucky, David, in Indonesia, especially in the most populated uh, island, Java and Sumatra, we have a lot of geothermal. Yeah. So our uh, idea is we are going to replace, you know, this coal-fired power plant with the geothermal because geothermal have uh, capacity to be a base load. And this is very important for the industry. We cannot rely on the solar or wind who have a lot of intermittency yeah, to supply the electricity for, for, for industry. Then I think this is also part of the plan for us to transitioning, uh, especially on the Java and Sumatra, yeah, our most populated island from coal to geothermal. And you had brought up the carbon financing that may or may not be available from G7 countries and others. And I was curious, how important is that type of financing to help reduce dependency on coal for domestic use to retire coal-fired plants? 
And do you see, if it's related, the turmoil this year in the voluntary carbon markets affecting the availability of finance to countries like Indonesia to move forward on their own energy transition away from coal to other sources of power? Yeah, it's very important, David. I think the basic principle, David, is one ton of carbon emission in Indonesia, in Africa, in Europe, in US will have the same impact to our climate, right? So why should we differentiate the cost of financing to do like this carbon reduction program in Indonesia, in Africa, in US, you know, in Europe? I think the cost of financing should be the same. The cost of capital should be approximately the same. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for developing country to do this program. I think International Energy Agency has done a very good exercise. Actually, if you want to successful on this early retirement of the coal-fired power plant, you need to reduce the WEC yeah, by 6%. It's quite a big number, David. So I don't think only developing country alone can do this one. Yeah. So I think the help of developed country is very important in our view. Yeah. Okay, if you don't want to finance our early retirement of coal-fired power plant, then help us on the grid. Yeah. I think this is this is something that I think will have uh, also same impact, even though that the impact might be not as fast as uh, early retiring the, the coal-fired power plant. And I think the second one is if you do, for example, David, uh, early retired 10 years earlier yeah, of the uh, coal-fired power plant, then at least on this 10 years period, we can trade the carbon yeah, reduction that we are getting from this early retirement of the coal-fired power plant. I think that will also help the economics of this uh, early retirement of the coal-fired power plant. And uh, so far, you know, internally, based on our discussion, the progress on this uh, carbon trading yeah, is not, not progressing as what we expect, to be honest, David. Yeah. yeah, and I imagine that has a spillover effect in other places. You know, we, we've spoken a lot about Indonesia reducing its own demand for coal, mm. but I'm curious, what's happening with the demand for your coal exports? Are you seeing countries, you know, because I would imagine if, if other countries are reducing their, their own coal demand as well, you'd see your demand for your exports to go down. Do you see those going down or going up? And what do you see as driving that? Well, unfortunately, David, based on our estimation, yeah. You know, International Energy Agency mentioned that, you know, the coal demand will be peak in 2025, 2026, yeah. Uh, based on our estimation, I don't think this is going to happen, yeah. You know, in China, for example, they built around 300 gigawatt hour of new coal-fired power plant. In India, they built approximately 60 gigawatt. Yeah. So I think I'm not really sure if you know the demand of the coal we're going to be peak here yeah, in 2025-2026 based on this data. Uh, however, I think for sure our coal reserve David will be finished yeah, by 2050-2055. Yeah. So I think it's going to be declining. Yeah. So I don't think yeah, in the next 10 years we are going to be the biggest coal exporter anymore yeah, because I think our reserve uh, also is depleted. Yeah. But if you ask me your, uh, your question, I think it's still going to increase yeah, the coal export. Right. And I wanted to ask you uh, about another commodity that's likely to export but one that I think the world is counting on, which is turning to nickel. 
Obviously, nickel is critical to the energy transition, key component in lithium-ion batteries, other types of batteries that we would need for electric vehicles. Indonesia is a major producer of nickel, and the energy transition makes that highly sought after and a highly valuable natural resource. And I wanted to ask you a few questions about that because you know commodity wealth and natural resource wealth has been a, a mixed blessing for countries historically. And I'm curious how Indonesia is approaching managing this resource and its wealth. Maybe to start off for our listeners, can you put the size of Indonesia's nickel reserves in context? I mean, how large are they and how much is there to be mined? Well, thank you very much, David. Yeah, I think first of all, I guess, you know, in the common economic textbook, yeah, we know that there is a terms of resource course, yeah, Dutch disease, you know, which, you know, means that the country that have a very huge natural resources usually is not well-developed economy, something like that. Yeah. So that's, I think this is mainly, you know, because I think previously, you know, we call it, this is a, a chicken economy, David, the chicken economic uh, mindset. Yeah. Why do you know how chicken is getting their food? Basically, they just dig, dig, dig and eat, right? Directly, you know, from what they dig, right? So I think basically it's quite the same with Indonesia. Uh, many, many years ago, yeah, before we start this downstream program, yeah, by our President Joko Widodo, yeah, we just dig, dig, dig our coal, our nickel, you know, we just export it to the uh, other countries. So we are not getting the value added, yeah, as much as, you know, we can, yeah. So I think this is first thing that, you know, uh, during uh, our President uh, Joko Widodo, we changed the mindset. So we are not allowing to export the nickel ore, which is the raw material, because I think it's not economics, David. You can imagine in the one ton of the nickel ore, the nickel content is actually only 1.7, 1. 1.8%. So 98.2, 98.3%, you are transporting dirt and water. And then it costs us like $14 per ton, you know, to transport the nickel ore from Indonesia to China who bought like maybe 96, 97% of our nickel before we ban the, 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 the nickel ore. So it's not economical. So when we do this export ban, we are carefully analyzing the economics. Is it going to be more profitable to build the processing in Indonesia? Or is it going to be more profitable building the, 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 the processing in the buyer's country of this nickel ore? Yeah? And then I think our analysis show that I think it's profitable to build in Indonesia. So I think this is why our downstream program on the nickel is, is very successful. Yes, at the first time, it's mostly a Chinese investor because they have the technology. But right now, you can see, David, Ford Motor Company is investing in Indonesia. You know, LG uh, Energy Solution is coming to Indonesia. And then some other investor from Taiwan, from India, you know, BASF, Eramet, you know, is coming to Indonesia. So I think it's sure that we are opening our nickel to anybody and then they are investing based on the economic sense, you know. Because if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't feasible based on the financial, yeah, the investor will not come and we lose our export revenue from this nickel ore. So I think this is very important understanding. Yeah. And then, yeah, we are very upset, of course, when EU bring us to the WTO, about this export ban, but you know, we we said to our our counterpart in the EU, do you know that you know your intention is to diversify the supply chain, yeah, out of you know concentration in a certain countries, yeah. But I've said to them, you know, if we are about to open this export of the nickel ore again, 
I'm pretty sure ya, yeah, 100% will go to China. And then you will need to get the nickel coming from China. And then I think that's the the, the, the situation. So I think this is also need to be understand by the developed country, especially the EU. Yeah. Actually, this program is benefiting all of us. You know, Indonesia, we can get increased value added, but in EU, in China, in South Korea, they can buy nickel product that is more efficient, you know, with a higher nickel content that can be transported from Indonesia. So I think this is something that should be win-win for everybody. Yeah. And has that been the real sticking point as you engage with other countries and companies in your nickel industry that you want to do the refining of the ore in Indonesia and they are objecting to that? No, I think they are very happy to come to Indonesia. Up until now, David, I think since 2016, yeah, more than our estimation, yeah, more than 25 billion has been invested in Indonesia on this nickel. Refining, smelting, iron and steel. Yeah. So it's, it's, it shows that, you know, the investor is getting their return or even maybe higher than their expectation. Yeah. Otherwise, the numbers of the investment will not as big as, you know, what I mentioned to you. Because obviously they don't want to come to Indonesia if they are not making money, right? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's very simple. Yeah. So I think the, the company is very happy, to be honest, because they can get the access of the nickel directly, you know. The European, BISF, Eramet, you know, they can come Indonesia, build the smelting and refining facility in Indonesia. So, yeah, I think it should be win-win for everybody. And then we are happy, you know, to provide our nickel to the world. You know, we are not putting any trade restriction beyond the nickel ore, beyond the nickel, which means that the first derivative of this processing, you know, which is, you know, nickel pig iron or uh, mixed hydrate precipitate is free to be exported to any country. We are not putting any threat restriction beyond the nickel ore, you know. And I was curious, you know, when you look at developing nickel and other natural resources, talked a little bit about, you know, the the mixed historical record of how that's helped or not helped countries. Are there countries you look to as examples or role models for like countries that have developed their natural resources well, or, you know, potentially countries that have developed them poorly, uh, who you're learning lessons from? Well, uh, yeah, we can take a look. I, I think for nickel, we are we are the first country who are doing this one, David. Yeah, I think you know New Caledonia have been trying uh, many many years ago, and it's not really successful. Yeah, but I guess the key in Indonesia is you know because I think you know the the calculation yeah and how actually we approach the investor at the beginning is quite correct. Yeah, so when we do this this ban yeah, on the export of the nickel ore David is actually we are giving them a transition time yeah so for example if we announce today we are going to do the export ban we are giving them five years to actually start implementing that one so all the nickel mine company can prepare yeah to construct the smelter and everything yeah. so I think that is also very important but to be honest this is something that we are trying to just yeah, our policy, you know, based just our estimation and calculation. Yeah. So I think this is quite unique. Yeah, when we visited many countries in Africa, you know, they are really eager to learn based on our experience how Indonesia can be successful in creating this uh, downstream project. Yeah. And I'm curious, how are you looking at using the wealth developed through the world's increased demand for nickel 
to develop the rest of the Indonesian economy? Well, I think it's it has a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, I can give you a name, a number. Yeah, in two thousand and eighteen, yeah, our export of the nickel and uh, its derivative product yeah, is only like four billion US dollar David. And last year, our export is about thirty four billion US dollar. So it's a eight times increase, yeah, and that has a huge impact to our macroeconomic stability because it generates more uh, dollar revenue to our country, and then it also help us to improve our trade balance, our current account, yeah, and that has an impact to the stability to our currency against US dollar. Uh, so it's 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 a huge impact on the macroeconomic stability. But if you take a look further, yeah. To the regional economic impact is huge, you know. Uh, we develop this uh, nickel downstream industry using the industrial estate project, yeah, which means that in this one industrial estate, you know, we are putting the smelter, we are putting the downstream company to process further the nickel and everything into one single area, which has their own power plant and everything. So they manage by themselves. The government just give the permit, yeah. So. And they employ a lot of people yeah, in that area. Yeah. So I give you an example. Our first industrial estate in Morowali, right now it employs 100,000 people direct employment. Direct employment, which is, you know, something that I don't think will never be created yeah, if we don't have uh, this, this, this nickel downstream industry over there. Yeah. And you can see the impact based on the small, medium enterprise. You know, Because the multiplier effect, effect is you have this huge employment, 100,000 of people, they need the accommodation, they need housing, they need food and everything. And then the small, medium enterprise is growing over the area. So it's a huge impact. And I know you were, I believe, also at the LME Week in London. Yeah. I was curious, what did you want to communicate to the metals industry there about Indonesia's role in the nickel market? Well, I'm. Uh, I was attending a mineral security partnership, yeah, uh, by the U.S. and U.K. government, and then discussing with the other MSP members such as Japan, South Korea, France, Germany, Canada, yeah, and as well as other non MSP member that is invited uh, on the discussion as well, such as you know some uh, South Africa, some African countries like Zambia, you know Kazakhstan, yeah. So I guess. A very important message is that uh, we, Indonesia, as the largest nickel reserve in the world, I think we have uh, the responsibility to supply enough nickel yeah, to meet the demand on the electric vehicle, on the stainless steel. Right now, David, our nickel supplying 55% of the global demand. Yeah? 55% of the global yeah, uh, demand. Yeah. I think in the next two years, three years, David, I think the numbers could be increased to more than 60-65% of the total demand. Yeah. So I think that's that's first. Yeah. And then I think we do like to diversify the supply chain. But unfortunately, I mentioned to them that the Western country, you know, to be honest, you know, if you compare the technology, because in Indonesia, we have seen the Chinese technology, we have seen the European technology, we are seeing the Japanese technology, the South Korean technology. And I've said to them, in terms of the effectiveness and the efficiency, the Western technology is about 10 years behind from the Chinese. Yeah. So I think if you want to develop the diversifying supply chain, then you need to really work hard to develop your technology. And the best chance to do that, in my view, is is working with the South Korean, working with the Japanese. Yeah, 
I think this 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 important. But you cannot just ignore, exclude the Chinese. I don't think that is feasible. You still need to work together, but we need to manage. You know how we can create more diversify, more balance of the supply of the uh, nickel that we process. Yeah, because I think this is the key bottleneck. Yeah. I'd love to dig into that a little bit with you, the technology piece. You know, when you say that the Chinese technology is, you know, probably ten years ahead of what you're seeing uh, in the West, is there a specific part of the supply chain? Is that yeah. in the, yeah. The, yeah. the mining part itself, the smelting, the refining? Yeah, I think the very specific. If you talk about the battery for the battery materials, yeah, the smelting and the refining, which is you know in Indonesia we do, uh, we have this uh, uh, HPAL, yeah, high pressure acid leaching, yeah. I think this is only the Chinese right now that really uh, providing the technology. Yeah. I mean, yes, there is some uh, European company, but if you compare the cost, is really the difference is really big, yeah, which may affect the economics of the project. Yeah. So I think this is this is something that is very important. If I said to the uh, to the US, if you want to be realistic, then you know, yeah, we have to work with the Chinese. And we need to sort out what kind of arrangement that can be acceptable for everybody. Yeah. So that's first. The second one is David. After you smelting and refining this this nickel, then you need to process it into a precursor. Yeah. And right now in the global precursor market, number one, number two, number three, number four, the biggest precursor company in the world is actually Chinese. They control about my calculation between sixty-five to seventy percent of the. The, the world precursor market. Even Tesla, for their nickel battery, the precursor is still supplying by the Chinese. So I think this is the reality that you know we have to face. You know We cannot just exclude the Chinese doesn't want to do the diversification. No, I think we need to do some arrangement that can be acceptable for, for everybody so that you know we can create diversifying supply chain. I think this is, to be honest, this is very important. Then after the precursor, you know, you make the cathode, uh, you make the anode and everything. Then some of the South Korean company, the Japanese company, then really start to have a, create a competition yeah, with the Chinese. All right. It's very helpful. I'm curious, when you were in London, were there any takeaways from the week about how the rest of the world is perceiving Indonesia's approach to the nickel market? Well, I think this is something that, you know, there is a lot of misunderstanding yeah, about the Indonesian nickel. Yeah. First of all, you know, uh, many NGO, international NGO writing about, you know, uh, Indonesia is creating a deep sea tailing project, yeah, which means that we are dumping our tailing to the deep sea yeah, for this HPAL nickel project. Uh, I said, oh, no, this is, not the, this is not the case in Indonesia. No, we are not giving any single permit yeah, for a deep sea tailing project in Indonesia for this nickel processing company, not single one. So I think that's first, yeah. The second one is, you know, there is a <laughs> misunderstanding, you know, when you do mining, yeah, when you do mining, of course you are going to see like, you know, the surface is is becoming like a hole, something like that, yeah. That is going, what you are going to see if you are in a mining active area. But in Indonesia, we have the regulation that after you complete your mining activity, you need to do the reclamation which means that you need to restore the area that you are opening before, you are restored it into the original one. Yeah. 
So uh, during the meeting, there is a uh, this minister uh, from UK, Minister Nusrat Ghani, Minister of Industry and Economic Security. I mentioned to her that you know you are seeing by yourself because she is visiting one of the nickel mine that we have, uh, Vale Indonesia, and I believe she has seen you know how this reclamation uh, going on and everything and what is the result. I think that's very important, you know. Number three, we are saying, yes, we have some deficiency, we have some problem here and there, you know, but, you know, we are fixing this one, you know. We are pushing all the company to actually participate on the international standard, David, such as IRMA, you know, Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. This is proposed by uh, key uh, automakers such as Ford, Tesla and everything. You know, we are doing this ICMM certification. We are talking to the Nickel Institute to ask for a Nickel Mark certification for some of our company. So yeah, I think we are working over there. So I think this is a very key message yeah, to them that, you know, We understand that the world is relying Indonesia on the nickel, and I think we need to have a better understanding, yeah, about you know how the mining activity, how processing Indonesia is working, how is our regulation framework about this one, yeah. So you are not judging us just based on these news, NGO reports, and everything that is not really verifying to this government policy yeah so i think this is very important david yeah and and i think that is also a very key message yeah besides of course you know i mentioned we need to work together on this especially on the critical mineral that is required for the energy transition the country that who own the resources and the reserve the country who has the technology i think it should work together yeah, to create uh, enough supply for this critical mineral otherwise david what you have seen now You know, because of the expensive price of some of these critical minerals, you know, the battery price is increasing last year. You know, it is making more expensive yeah, for the EV. And then we have seen in some of the region, the growth of the EV penetration is actually becoming slowing down. Yeah. So for Indonesia, we, are, we don't want high price nickel. We want the nickel price is just right. For everybody, you know, for the producing countries, for the consumer, so that we can do this energy transition properly. Well, and thank you so much for sharing so much of your message and what you're doing in Indonesia in regards to both coal and nickel and meeting the needs of the energy transition. Before I let you go, I was hoping maybe if you we could look forward 10, 20 years, you know, kind of away from the all the pressing matters of today, and maybe you could share your vision for you know indonesia and its mining industry and what does that look like what is your vision for it over the next 10 20 years well uh, obviously you know we want to improve our wealth yeah for the people yeah the prosperity of the people and then of course you know we have to create a value added yeah of our mining resources yeah our mineral that we have yeah but i guess two things yeah we need to do it in uh proper way which mean then you know if we want to make a policy we have to make sure that actually the policy can be implemented effectively the policy can invite the investor to come i think that is very important so that it creates a win-win situation both for the country for the people and for the investor and that's very basic principle the second one is you know for this type of this you know environmental esg you know we understand and i think this is for our interest david yeah If we are not doing this properly, David, then it will hurt our next generation. Yeah, 
it's not the children in EU, it's not the children in US that will be uh, hurt by uh, if we don't we don't take care of this our environment. It will be our my children, my grandchildren in Indonesia that will be affected. Yeah. So I think this is very important. We are we are going to create this this balance yeah, between how we develop, how we industrialize, how we create the value added of our mineral resources. But at the same time, we want to do it a properly uh, manner. You know, of course, we are not perfect. We have a lot of problem David, but the government is committed to fix this issue. You know, make sure that you know we are creating a sustainable development yeah, for this uh, mining industry because we know this is non-renewable resources definitely which means that once we take out you know we cannot replace it yeah so yeah maybe with recycling we can replace some but actually it's 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 not going to be the same yeah. so i think we have to optimize you know the value added that we can create thanks again to septian hario seto deputy minister of the coordinating ministry for maritime and investment affairs of indonesia We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, Commodities in Asia, with our guest, Sunil Kashyap, Director at FinMet. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.